Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God in sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward, destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay with their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. They are destroying by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs in your love feasts as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all, to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness, that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him, these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers, following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, 
to our only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all times, and now and forevermore. Amen. Father, we come into your presence. We are grateful for your word. Thank you, Lord, for this gathered body. Lord, as we have gone deep in this text over the last month, Lord, we are just humbled by how you reveal your holy nature, your perfect will. And Lord, in that process, you, you give us the Isaiah moments of showing our sin. So would you do that today? Would you show us our sin, our disobedience? And Lord, would we be quick to turn to you? Would we be quick to repent and see the glorious Savior, Jesus Thank you, Lord, again for your text. Thank you for Pastor Mike as he has prepared. Lord, would you Lord, give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Tom, you can grab a seat. If you have not already, I would invite you to open up to the book of Jude one last time as we finish our series, Contend. In 1944, 1944, on the eve of the largest amphibious assault this world has ever known, the 160,000 Allied troops of America, Britain, and Canada received a message from the Supreme Allied Commander Dwight Eisenhower, General Eisenhower. They're making final preparations for landing at what would become the bloody beach of Normandy in order to contend for freedom in the face of brutal Nazi tyranny. I think it's 85 years later, these words written by General Eisenhower still resonate in the human soul, especially as you think of the faces of the men on the eve of the last day of the lives, last life, last days, uh, end of the life of many of them who would lose uh, their lives contending for freedom on the bloody beaches of Normandy. I want to read to you those words. Quote, you are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. In company with our brave allies and brothers-in-arms on other fronts, you will bring about the destruction of the German war machine, the elimination of Nazi tyranny over the oppressed peoples of Europe, and security for ourselves in a free world. Your task, he goes on to write, will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely. But this is the year 1944. Much has happened since the Nazi triumphs of 1940 and 41. The United Nations have inflicted upon Germans great defeats and open battle, man to man. Our air offensive has seriously reduced their strength in the air and their capacity to wage war on the ground. Our home fronts have given us an overwhelming superiority in weapons and munitions of war and placed at our disposals great reserves of trained fighting men. The tide has turned. 
The free men of the world are marching together to victory. And he ends by writing, I have full confidence in your courage, devotion to duty, and skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than full victory. Good luck, and let us beseech the blessing of Almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking. Those are some stirring words, aren't they? Especially as you think of the men who lost their lives for this cause, for freedom. Well, in a way, Jude reads like Eisenhower's letter of encouragement. Specifically, verses 24 and 25. We close with that. These are encouraging words Jude is writing to us as we contend for the faith once delivered to the saints in the face of those false teachers who would seek to destroy others by twisting both the lordship of Christ and the grace of Christ. Only you know this. These are not just words of encouragement to us. They are words of encouragement to us, right? Not him who's able to keep us from stumbling. That's very encouraging. But they're not only words of encouragement to us, they are words of praise to God. This is actually the, 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 what people, some people call the doxology of doxologies. They are words of praise to God for and because of the encouragement these words give to us at the same time. Doxology. Doxa meaning glory. Ology from lagos meaning word. These are glory words. These are praise sayings. And from this stunning doxology, there are three things I believe that should stir us together as we contend for the faith in the face of false teachers. So I want to preach you this morning on doxological encouragement. Three things that should stir us as we contend for the faith. Y'all with me? So number one, there is a stirring word about preservation. Namely, God will, my brother in Christ, my sister in Christ, he will keep you from stumbling. Look at these inspired words yourself. He says, verse 24, now to him who was able to keep you from stumbling. Now, what is this a promise of and what is this not a promise of? This is not a promise of sinless perfection. Of course, the word you probably uh, had with one of your children or your spouse on the way here this morning reminded you that you have not attained yet <laughs> sinless perfection, uh, perhaps. Nor is this a promise that you will not automatically have a tragic fall if you don't watch your way. David had a tragic fall, right? Peter had a tragic fall, did he not? The old Scottish preacher Alexander White had it right when he said, quote, our spiritual life is like falling down and getting up again. Falling down and getting up again and doing that all the way to heaven. So when Paul, I'm sorry, we don't know who the writer, well, Jude, we do know, actually. <laughs> the, the things preachers say that you wish you could just clip out, but I can't. Jude, ultimately the Holy Spirit. These words, 
not him who is able to keep you from stumbling. He's not talking about automatic immunization from sinning, certainly not from struggling, but the word stumbling, sometimes maybe in your translation translated falling, is the word from which we get the word, anyone want to guess? Who said that? Stephen, come on up, finish this message, okay? We're definitely vibing up. That's exactly it. It's the word from which we derive the word apostasy. So it's like he's saying, now to him who was able to keep you from falling away from the faith. That's the promise right there. But somebody says, well, wait a second. Apostasy really happens, doesn't it? Does apostasy happen, yes or no? Do people walk away from the faith, yes or no? Of course they do. Jude actually writes about that earlier. And maybe you're even thinking yourself, man, I have known some people, and I have myself, who seem to be a whole lot more spiritual than me, who seem to be a whole lot mature in their faith than me, who just walked away, and now they make no confession of faith in Christ. You know anybody like that? So yes, apostasy happens. In fact, I've seen pastors, guys who do what I'm doing this morning, over years, one guy like 35 years, walk away from the faith, say it's not true. There was one pastor who once wrote a book called uh, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, and since then he's kissed God goodbye. There was one pastor, uh, this is pretty recent, he pastors a big church. One day he turned on the news, uh, this is a few years ago of course when it happened, but not that long ago, the Rwandan genocide, you remember that? When he saw that on the news, he said, mm, God let this happen, God can't be trusted, and then he went farther, he said, hell is not real. And then he went farther and basically turned from the God of the Bible and led his congregation in the same direction. False teacher. Which wisely caused another pastor to say, listen, you should turn to God before you turn on the news. You should tune, turn in, tune in on the, the good news anchorman before you go to, uh, I don't know, Anderson Cooper, name somebody. The fact of the matter is, you will experience things. If you have not already, and you probably have, but if not, you, have, you will, you're going to experience things that will flat out tempt you to turn away from God. You will. Especially when there are false teachers out there, plenty of them, starting with your own flesh, more than willing to say, hmm, what you thought about God was all wrong. Just listen to me. Which is exactly why, and we covered this two weeks ago, we're told to keep ourselves in what? Keep ourselves in the, in the love of God. And if you did not listen to that message, let me appeal to you to do that. Because the truth in it, we keep ourselves in the love of God by building ourselves up ourselves up in the most holy faith. This is doctrinal pursuit of who God is. By praying in the Holy Spirit, a life of prayer according to the word of God, under the influence of the Spirit, we're called to wait expectantly 
for the return of Jesus Christ. That will impact how you live every day so that you have oil in your lamp. Remember that? Now, for those who do that, you are indeed building yourself up in the love of God. But you still wonder, but am I next? Will I potentially apostatize? I mean, so-and-so did, and they seem so far ahead in their walk than I ever have been. My, my friend, she apostatized. He apostatized. My mom apostatized. He doesn't really. My, my, my dad. A sibling. A person, the person who actually led me to the Lord. They turned away from the Lord. And you might think, well, in light of all that, good night. Is my faith just made up? You ever think that? You ever wonder that? You ever wonder, well, I'm a Christian because I was maybe raised in a Christian family and I was born in a Muslim family and this and this and that, right? Let the weight of these words fall on you, okay? And by the way, another meaning of the word doxa is weight, the weight of the glory of God. Now to him who was able to keep you from stumbling. God is able to keep you. It's a military expression. God is able to garrison you from stumbling, from falling, from drifting away. And the idea is not this. The idea is not like some people say, saying it's just stupid, it's a low view of God, and it's a low view of salvation, that he, hey, if you stop believing, even if you once believe, but you stop believing, you're still saved. That's not the idea. The idea is God will, in fact, keep you believing. And I'll just be real transparent about my heart right now. And if you want to amen in your heart because it resonates with you, you go ahead and do so. But I know this. I've had more than enough heartbreaks. I've had more than enough sins. I've had more than enough struggles. I've had more than enough setbacks. I've had more than enough shame and embarrassment and unanswered prayers and all the rest to know that I only continue to believe, not because of some inward tenacity, I'm tenacious, I'm not that tenacious, but because of the keeping power of God. That's what he's saying. Now to him who was able to keep you from stumbling. And by the way, you just trace out the expression able. God is able. There are so many references, references to that across scripture, but here's just a few. Many, many years ago, three Jewish men were about to be thrown into a fiery furnace. And they said, you remember these words, my God is able to keep me from burning. And baby, that's what happened, right? And then maybe the cockiest guy around at that time, Nebuchadnezzar, who was caused because of his cockiness to live like a cow for a few months, remember that? He said, God, your God is able to humble those who walk in pride. One day the Pharisees were boasting to Jesus about their pedigree. We're sons of Abraham. And Jesus says, yeah, big deal. God is able to raise up sons of Abraham from these stones that were on the side of the road. Paul writes to Timothy, I am not ashamed 
For I know in whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard or keep against that day that which he has entrusted to me. Do you remember that? And check this out, Hebrews 7, 26, I think it is. Consequently, God is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him through Jesus because he ever ever lives to make intercession for them. Listen, God's ability is unstoppable. He is able to keep that which he's committed to you against that day. He's able to keep you from stumbling. Many of you know, well, not many, but probably a lot of you know, I don't know, eight, nine, ten years ago, I fell about 24 feet from a deer stand. Bam! I probably should have died. I like the way Susan puts it, because I did not hit a branch. Maybe God had an angel catch me about nine feet and then drop me from there just to let me know, you stupid fool, you should use a safety harness, okay? Well, two years later, I actually fell again. You didn't know that. Cleet knows. Susan knows. I fell, remember we were in Kalamazoo, but I had that harness on, bam, so it snapped me from hitting the ground, and my face hit against the uh, stand, and Cleet behind my back texted Susan and said, I think he broke his jawbone, because it had a goose egg there. I did not. I started to fall, but the safety harness arrested that fall, although it bruised me a little bit. And I just want to tell you, I want to tell you, if you're in Christ, you have the ultimate safety harness on. You do. Now, if you drift from your senses, he may snap you back and it may hurt. But that beats the mess out of falling all the way down, right? And maybe he'll let stuff come into your life that is painful, but it keeps you turning to him. Otherwise, you were just kind of going your own way. Jesus said this, that of all the Father has given me, I will not lose one. So we ought to, first of all, praise God for this, because it's this word of preservation. Now to him who was able to keep you from stumbling. And if you care about being kept by God, you're only showing it's because God is keeping you. Number two, there is a word of presentation here. God will present us to himself. Look at 24b. Now to him who was able to keep you from stumbling, now here's the end, and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. God is going to present you to himself in the presence of his glory. God's going to present you to himself in the presence of his glory. And by the way, the word present means he will make you stand, make you stand in the presence of his glory. And if you find yourself yawning over this matter, if you find yourself saying, well, that's no big deal, it's because you have whittled down God. And quite possibly, you worship a God that is not the living Lord of glory of Scripture. And here's why I say that. Do you know that in the Bible, when we have recorded encounters of people with the glory of God, their face almost melts off, right? Even, even Moses says, show me your glory. And what, is, what does the Lord say to him? You can't see my glory and live. You can see the backside of it. Isaiah, that was part of our prayer this morning. In the, in the year that King Uzziah dies, 
Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the glory filled the temple. And what does he say? You look pretty good, Lord. Hmm. What does he say? Woe is me. From a man of unclean lips, I'm a man undone. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, and I dwell in the midst of an unclean people. Remember that? What about Ezekiel? Ezekiel chapter 3 records Ezekiel's seen the glory of God, and Ezekiel falls on his face as if he was dead, the text says. The Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John see Jesus let out some of his glory, his Shekinah glory. What do they do? They say, oh, that's pretty cool. Jesus, wish you had shown that to us earlier. No, they fall on their face, it says, terrified. And in Revelation chapter 1, John, the one who experienced the closest walk with Jesus among everybody, remember that? In the days of his flesh on earth, John sees this Jesus he had great intimacy with as a a follower of Christ who spent much time with them. They had a close relationship, Peter, James, and John, and John most of all. The Bible says the, the disciple whom he loved. He loved them all, but th- th- he loved them. He has this familiarity with them, but he sees Jesus as glorified, and he falls on his face as dead. See, that's what happens when people see the glory of God. They fall, their, their face as it were melts off. But the average person, the average person thinks that they're quite cool with God. Don't they? <laughs> I'm lovable. I'm a catch for God. And false teachers typically only feed that delusion. I mean, it's not popular to say otherwise, is it? Everybody in the main thinks they're coasting along just fine Psalm 73 style. Remember Psalm 73? Asaph looks at people who don't love God, don't live for God, seem to be doing so well and prospering. And that seems like what people are. Fine, they have, they have no fear of God, the text says. Enjoying life just fine, unshackled by all this following Christ stuff. But you go to that psalm, imagine the sudden realization, verse 18, that they, when they stand before the Lord, are standing in a slippery, slippery place. And in verse 19 says, and they will fall to sudden and everlasting destruction. They will be awakened to who God really is, his holiness in light of their sinfulness. I just watched a video about a guy in Denmark whose job is to uh, push snow off roofs. He's three stories up. Maybe he forgot to wear his harness, and you can see him slowly sliding down, bam, hitting this concrete and kind of twitching as I'm guessing he lost his life. Like styrofoam in a fire, is fallen man in the presence of the holiness of God's glory. That's why you go to Revelation chapter 6. I'm really belaboring this point. But Revelation chapter 6, you could, in fact, I'm going to turn there right now because I'm just a few, one book away from it. In Revelation chapter 6, verse 15. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who was seated on the throne and from what? 
the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of the wrath has come. And who can stand? See that? Who can stand, right? Who can stand? And yet our text says God will make us to stand in the presence of his glory. You see, for us, we will not melt like styrofoam in a fire. Not us, brothers and sisters of Christ, not us. Not us, because at the cross, Jesus dealt with our sins, bearing the judgment we deserve, removing our sin from us, atoning for our sin, so that we now can stand before him cleansed and forgiven. We can stand before the presence of the glory of the living God because of Jesus. That's it, period. And did you catch, he says, that's why we stand before him, how? Blameless, blameless. Is this a typo? You don't know me, God. Blameless, blameless. Doesn't that hit you? You know your record. You know your heart. You know your drifting. You know your doubting. You know your unbelief. You know your sin, blameless. It's the same word in the Old Testament used of perfect sacrifices. And by the way, used in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19 of Jesus Christ, who was a lamb slain for us as of a lamb without spot or blemish. Listen, on the base of the text, we're gonna st- God is going to say, he's, he's going to stand us in the presence of his glory, and it's not going to be scolding. You're not going to be... Um, There's not going to be any reluctance on his behalf. There's not going to be exasperation like, oh, really? You're in front of me? (sighs) All right, you come in. Take the side door. I don't want to see you coming into my house. No, none of that. He's going to make us stand in the presence of his glory. How? Blameless. Me, you, yep, if you're in Christ. And one day, one day, when all the holy angels, just like they do in Isaiah 6 right now, because of God's holiness, they're holy angels, but they still cover their face. When all creation erupts into singing before the presence of God, at that day, you are going to stand before him blamelessly. 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 Hallelujah. No wonder it goes on to say, with Great joy, with great joy. Now, whose joy? Whose joy? God or ours? What do you think? I've always first thought of our joy, and in fact, it's referencing that. We'll come back to that, point three. But do you know there will be joy for God in that moment? Joy for God over you, raggedy old you, standing blamelessly in his presence is going to fill God's heart with joy. Zephaniah 3.17 anticipates this prophetically when Zephaniah wrote, the Lord your God will exalt over you with loud singing. The Lord's going to exalt over you with loud singing. Hey, 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 can you hear that? Over you with loud singing. Over me with loud singing. I want an old preacher to come up and help me with this point. Well, we can't bring him back, but I got his words. You know, I love to read Charles Haddon Spurgeon's sermons, the Prince of Preachers. He preached October 30th 
1887 from this text. Zephaniah 317, the Lord your God will rejoice over you, exult over you with loud singing. And he makes the point in this message that at creation, God did not actually sing. The morning angel sang, Job tells us, creation sang, God did not sing. He simply said good, and then when he created humans, he said, very good. So there was some exuberance there, but he wasn't singing. Spurgeon preached, quote, think of the great Jehovah singing. Can you imagine it? Is it possible to conceive of the deity breaking into a song? Father, Son, and Holy Ghost together singing over the redeemed? God is so happy in the love which he bears to his people that he breaks the eternal silence and sun and moon and stars with astonishment hear God chanting a hymn of joy over his redeemed people. I'm at the age, parents and parents here, blink, you'll be there too when your kids move on. So next year we'll have one child in our house. For many more years. It kind of brings me sadness thinking about that. And as parents, it's one of the reasons holidays can be so sweet, right? Your kids come home. Your kids come home and they tell the same stupid stories over and over again, you know? And you eat a lot of good food and you make memories and you laugh and you poke fun at each other and you have a blast and all this. And as a parent, joy just fills your heart, right? My kids are there. Joy is going to fill the heart of God when all his kids are there. Joy is going to fill the heart of God when those bought by the blood of his son are gathered in his presence, standing before him blamelessly, both the creator and his redeemed overflowing in mutual joy. Spurgeon went on to say, hey, if God sings, shall we not sing? Let me me say that, congregation. If God sings over us, should we sing over him? Yes. So number one, there's a word of preservation, not him who was able to keep you from stumbling. There's a word of presentation and to present you or to make you stand blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Well, because of God's preservation and presentation of us, there should be our exaltation of him. Our lifting up of him. Our highly esteeming him. Our worshiping him. Our praising him. Our ascribing glory to him. I say ought strategically because the day is coming When there will be no ought, there will be just is or will. It will be automatic at that day. It will be automatic. In the same way, if I had a big spring up here and I pushed it down and I released my hand, boom, it would automatically spring up, right? In the same way. No, I'm not done quite yet. I'm not done. I don't know why it did that today. Maybe the time changed. In the same way when... It's so beautiful to watch. Uh, a groom's right here. 
and he sees his bride, his soon-to-be wife, walking towards him, and he just gushes with joy. That's going to be my wife. It's automatic. There ain't no ought. It just is, right? Well, the last three words of our verse 24 says, with great joy. And I say to you that that certainly is God, his joy. We just talked about that. But it's our joy as well. And in a sense, verse 24, while it definitely gives us words of encouragement about preservation, God is able to keep you from stumbling. And words of presentation and make you stand blamelessly in the presence of his glory with great joy. It ultimately, even verse 24, is exaltation because it begins with, now to him. Now, right now, right now to him. And he continues on. And verse 24 then spells out, fleshes out, having explained why we should be encouraged, again, preservation and presentation, he then turns to directly exalting God who is the source of this encouragement. With this we end. This exaltation of God is medicine to our soul. Because I want to talk to the person right here. You say, I'm not in much of an exalting mood. Again, I was pretty transparent. There are many times I'm not much of an exalting mood. But I'm saying right here is this exalting isn't just what God is worthy of. It's actually good for you. Not in humanistic, make yourself feel better. No, it really is. And let let me explain why. C.S. Lewis in his book, Surprised by Joy, has a wonderful quote. Here it is. The human soul was made to enjoy some object that is never fully given in our present mode of subjective and spatio-temporal experience. Let me break that down. In this life. Let me read it again. The human soul was made to enjoy some object that is never fully given in this present life. And he's saying object of ultimate joy, okay? Which is why, and I think you'll agree with this, our joy seems to ebb and flow in this life, right? Times of great joy, times of great pain. It can even slip away for a long season, can it, this joy? And even when we're experiencing it in its purest forms and highest forms, we're still left longing for just a little bit more. It doesn't quite, close maybe sometimes, scratch that itch. It doesn't fully satisfy. But do you know that when you stand before this object, when you stand blameless in the presence of God, and you see his glory for what it is, That is all going to change. That is all going to change. What Scripture always promised and what the psalmist is relentlessly pointed toward will finally and forever be realized in the depths of your soul that in your presence is the fullness of joy. That when you inquire in the temple, Psalm 27, verse 4, and gaze upon his beauty, gaze you will to the satisfaction of your soul everlastingly. That a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere, and I get eternity in your courts. And with the joy of standing before 
God in all of his glory without your face being melted off. Fueling your exaltation of him, you will say, verse 25, to the only God. Say that, to the only God. To the only God. You know, I, I got to thinking, even Jewish people, and, and, and by the way, anti-Semitism is on the rise big time. To the Jewish people yet in unbelief who have not come to God through God's Messiah, Jesus Christ, they still have such a high view of God's name, they won't say it and they won't write it. G slash, or G dash D, right? You've seen people do that. And yet so often God's name is used like an exclamation point over something we're surprised about. Or meaningless banter. But in that day, in that day, it will be the most worshipful statement of us absolute and unrivaled supremacy ever to the only God, our Savior through Jesus Christ, our Lord. What an exuberant declaration that will be, that the only reason I am near and dear to the eternal transcendent God without my face being melted off in, face, in light of his holiness is because there's a lamb standing as though it had been slain, Revelation 5. And maybe that's what Charles Gabriel had in mind when he, we sang it, I stand in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be, how marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. And then these lines, these words, when with the ransom in glory his face at last I shall see, t'will be my joy through the ages to sing of his love for me. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, and then this, be glory. Be glory. What, what does that mean? That is the totality of God's attributes and perfections. Sometimes people say glory is the visible display, much like a rainbow displays the, the colors in the spectrum of light. Be glory. And then majesty. That refers to his greatness, his unrivaled greatness as potentate, as sovereign, as king. Be glory. Be majesty, be dominion. That means his power over absolutely everything. And authority, that's his intrinsic right to exercise that power as he pleases. Now, I could break down these words even more, I think. But I think I would be in danger of pixelating this beautiful picture, right? Just glory to him, glory to him. And Psalm 29 verse 2 gets it right, ascribe to him glory. Sometimes it's translated, give to him glory. We don't give God glory. Huh? That, that, that English word is deficient in trying to translate what's there. It's not we give him glory, we ascribe it, we recognize his glory. This is glory that he's had, as the text says, before all time and now and forever. Alex, uh, not Alexander, but uh, Alistair Begg, listening to him through his uh, series in Jude. And he had some convicting, convicting questions along these lines. And I just want you to square up, about done, but I want you to square up with these questions. Can you say the right thing about Jesus? Even have right doctrine about Jesus and all that stuff? And yet you're just kind of stuck where you're at? Do you care 
more about the glory of others, your peers, than the glory of God? Or are you just unmoved by the glory of God? Now, the answer for all of us would be what at times? Yes, and Jesus died for that too, spurning his glory. But now Jude, he, he won't let us relegate this exaltation to a future time. What in these verses tell us, no, 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 no. This, the ought needs to turn to is right now. What word tells us that? What word? What does he say? How does he kick off this doxology of doxologies? What does he say? Now, now to him. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. And that would be really good medicine for whatever you're facing in life right now. Nick, why don't you come as I close right here? Most people do not know that Eisenhower, I didn't know this until I thought of this as an opening illustration, Eisenhower actually wrote an in-case-of-bulletin that was going to be sent out in case the landing at Normandy, the bloody beaches of Normandy, was, re was, rebelled, was repelled against. This is what he wrote. You'll have to excuse my French. We have a young lady from France here, so I'll do my best. Wow, how about that, right? Our landings in the Cherbourg Havre, can you say it? I'm so sorry to put you on. You say, I'm never sitting in the second row again. Okay, our landings in these French towns have failed to gain a satisfactory foothold, and I have withdrawn the troops. My decision to attack at this time and place was based on the best available information possible. The troops, the air, and the Navy did all that their bravery and devotion to duty could do. If any blame or fault attaches to the attempt, it is mine alone, which is, by the way, a great leader who would do that. But he wrote, and in case of, it failed. There's no Jude 26 in case of. None. No translation out there. Not even the Jehovah's Witnesses translation, I think. Nothing out there. Why? Because there is no in case of with God. Yes, the battle for contending will be hard. And yes, there will be casualties. But for those, verse 1a, called, beloved, kept, you are signed, you are sealed, and you are delivered. Signed by the good pleasure of the Father from the foundation of the world. Sealed in time 2,000 years ago by the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. And delivered in time by the Spirit of God applying the work of the crucified, resurrected Savior to you. So as the rounds fly and we take our positions on the battlefield, let's not just say, but confidently exclaim those words, not a him who was able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord 
be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.